The Smoke Divers Creed. If I persist, if I continue to try, if I continue to charge forward, I will succeed. I will not hear those who weep and complain, for their disease is contagious. The prizes of life at the end of each journey, not near the beginnings, and is not given to me to know how many steps are necessary in order to reach my goal. I will never consider defeat. I will remove from my vocabulary such words as quit, cannot, unable, impossible, failure, and retreat. For these are the words of fools and cowards. When my thoughts beckon my tired body homeward, I will resist the temptation to depart. I will try again. I will make one more attempt to close one more attempt close with victory. And if all else fails, I will make another. When others cease their struggle, then mine will begin and my harvest will be full. And that is the smoke divers creed from the Georgia smoke divers. And today we have with us Mr. David Rhodes, who is the editor-in-chief of Fire Engineering Magazine, retired battalion chief with Atlanta Fire Department, and uh, the father of smoke diving. David, please introduce yourself, and uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, you uh, you stumbled on a couple of those words, so you do owe us uh, 50 push-ups. I'm in. <laughs> and you forgot <laughs> the... Uh, one of the most important, it's not written on there, but as soon as you finish, you got to go, whoo, whoo, there you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, I brought you on today. I wanted to talk about leadership. And um, I think, first of all, just kind of give everybody an explanation of what the uh, smoke divers are, kind of, you know, what their core values are. And uh, let's start with that and we'll get into, uh, we'll get into some leadership stuff. Yeah, smoke divers actually... Uh in Georgia started in 78 with Cortez Lawrence, who went on to be the deputy public safety director in Auburn. He was a fire chief in LaGrange, Georgia. Um, he took the class in Florida back in 76, I believe, like the concepts. Um, a lot of it had been brought over from um, across the pond at some departments that still have it, but basically the breathing apparatus was a new piece of equipment that was gaining acceptance. And, uh, with all new equipment, people are like, well, that thing's going to fail and we're going to get in trouble. So we need to know what to do in case this thing failed. So it, it started out as a, as a breathing apparatus, confidence course, emergency procedures. It was writ before writ was around and all of that. And, uh, Obviously, since 78, it's evolved to where it's primary, primarily a leadership class that uh, that still holds true to the to the core mission of a lot of breathing apparatus work, emergency procedures, search and rescue. But really, the class is a personal journey in overcoming adversity and learning how to deal in small teams and uh, and learning your your mental and, and physical limitations and uh, has about a 50. We go anywhere from 30% to 60% uh, completion rate, but the average that stays around 50%. And, uh, you know, it's life-changing for folks. Um, we have our, our 
stuff trademarked and copyrighted, but um, there's, I think, 16, 17 smoke diver programs around the country. They're all a little different, but um, ours, Indiana and uh, Oklahoma are all the same curriculum and, and philosophy. But there's some that are two days, there's some that are three days, some are more truly just breathing apparatus confidence, but ours is is kind of in its own little little bubble. But there's no there's no um single coordination of the of the word smoke diver. It means different things in different states. So um whatever a person's experience with in one state might be a totally different class in, in another state. Gotcha. So, I mean, it all focuses on core skills, um, breathing apparatus. It did the stuff with RIT before there was RIT. Everything that you mentioned, um, it all takes a team to do it, but it also takes the individual who has the strength of body and mind to accomplish it. So, Typically, at least in my understanding of what I've read and kind of what we talked about before we um, before we hit record here, was um, you're basically training to make yourself prepared for very bad case scenarios, but you're also training for yourself to be, to get to that next level, go to those levels you thought you could never reach, and most importantly, um, be successful. Right. Rule out, uh, not rule out, uh, root out mediocrity, root out laziness, root out complacency. And um, these situations and what you're training for are very difficult situations, life and death situations. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as well as I do, when those situations happen on the fire ground and throughout the rest of the fire service and actually really any situation involving human beings um, where there is a uh, sense of mortal danger, um, someone's going to have to step up, right? One individual, a few individuals. um, I think there's that common joke of, you know, you could have 100 people and there's always seems to be like 20 people doing the the actual work, but everybody kind of gets the credit. But in these situations, that's not the case. So when you do these classes, and this is what I'm getting at, I apologize for being long-winded. When you do these classes, everybody kind of gets broken down to the same level, fairly similar to like the military boot camp. Um, There's an indoctrination phase, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. There's a phase in which you kind of remove the individualism and you put them together with a common goal, a common enemy. I don't want to say the instructor's the enemy, but you're, you're the heavy hand, the instructor, instructors, the cadre. Um, and you say, these guys are going to hold you accountable. Go do that. You're not, everybody's the same. You're at the same level. Go leaders emerge, whether yeah. it's um, a natural leader, uh, a, Circum, I don't want to say circumstantial, but a uh, a leader that's going to someone's going to rise to the occasion in the moment, right? So, do you what do you guys see as instructors when you see a group of people or they're going through something incredibly difficult and you're turning up the volume on the stress level through um, the instructors? Yeah, interestingly, um, and and of course the military has been trying to figure this out for years to to help with budgeting, but there's no predictor of success. Um, there are a lot of predictors of failure 
And in our qualification process, um, we have, um, you know, physical activity that you have to do and you're competing for a spot in the class. Um, we, we do a, we, we do a written test, which is funny because, uh, as a person who does a, does assessment centers and all, I'm like very much against doing a written test for a promotional assessment. Um, but it's, it's in there to see if you're disciplined enough to prepare. And, uh, so where most, most of the country, everything's a 70 based, uh, you know, we hold ours at, at an 80 and, uh, um, the first time we ever did that, it was amazing how many people failed the written test, you know, with 77s and 78s and all that. And it was like, should we, should we lower it? And it's like, no. And the next time, because we didn't lower it, the next time there was hardly anybody that failed because they knew what to expect, you know, coming in. So we do that. Obviously there's a lot of physical, uh, um, evolutions that they do to try out, but even getting through the, the qualification period, we still hover at 50% completion rate. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you don't really know how a person is going to react to physical and mental stress until you actually put them in the situation and you can't adequately put them in a situation in one day. Um, it, it has to be a process and our, our class is six days long and we really don't get you where we want you until about the third day. And that's an accumulation of tiredness, um, you know, sore knees, sore muscles and all that stuff. And so the predictors of, of, of success are that if you're in good physical condition and you're not struggling with the physical activity, then your mind stays focused and, and sharper and you recover faster, but everybody gets to a point where they're, where they're worn out. And that's where we really, that's where the real magic starts to happen is, uh, your, your innate instincts take over and you are exercising your brain in an area that it has probably never been because even, even on a bad incident, you know, unless you're trapped and you're going through the mental process of not being able to move or being cut off and lost, um, you're only in that for a short period of time. And if you're successfully, if you successfully get out of it, you recover pretty quickly. Sure. But over the course of, of six days, um, you're put in so many of those situations where you're, you're tested like that, that it almost becomes natural. And so you expect it. And, uh, we always use the analogy that if you want to, if you want a bigger bicep, then you got to tear that bicep down, work it to failure and then let it rest and then build it back up. Uh, we use the same philosophy with, with the mental side of it is you've got to be put in these situations shown that there's a way out, um, learn how to breathe, learn how to control your heart rate and learn how to stay focused on the task so that you can survive that incident. And we're very, very adamant with them that when, when a group, when a small group like that is put under severe stress, it's not always the officer that gets them out of the jam. And to your point about, um, people have different skills and different abilities to cope with different things. And so 
the magic of like small teams is that you, you defer to the, to the person with the expertise at the time. Um, that doesn't mean you're any less of an officer or, or less of in command, but, um, it will be, you know, out of those hundred that will saying that there's one that's the true warrior that brings the others home. And that's what we're looking for is that person that can hold it together in that adversity, stay focused. And you do that through competence by you totally you're at one with your equipment, you know, your equipment inside and out all the way down to, uh, you know, we teach you how to get out of situations that if you have total equipment failure, and there's air in your SEBA cylinder, how to breathe that air out of your cylinder with nothing else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people wouldn't even think of that because it's like, well, wait a minute, that's, that's like high pressure and you could do this. Yeah, you could, but you could also use it to get yourself out if that's all you had. Right. And yeah, it's not, it's not something that's uh, approved by a standard. It's not an accepted method, but it beats dying. Uh, yes, it's living, living is enjoyable, but, um, it's adaptability. I mean, you have to, then that's what we're teaching too, is we're teaching you how to be adaptable. We're not encouraging you to be a freelancer. We're not encouraging you to go outside the system, but we're also realistic in saying that the system doesn't always have all the answers. And sometimes you got to make up the answers on the fly and reality doesn't care about anything because reality reality is going to happen right? right people that when they get killed in the line of duty and I, and I like i said before i don't really get into these but if you go back and read any of these studies something is coming back to where it was never just a blink of an eye something happened oh, i yeah, mean i'm sure can. there's things that kind of just happen catastrophically but we're not mm-hmm. talking about that what, what i'm getting at is everything's a chain everything's a there's a link uh, there's a chain of events and if you could remove one of those links in that chain, you could have prevented it. You could have had a different outcome. So if you have the ability to walk around with bolt cutters by having outside the box skills, thoughts, and abilities, why not have them and keep it in your back pocket when you need it? You know, I mean, quite frankly, I I mean, I don't know how this works, but like, I don't imagine anyone would have anything bad coming. If you didn't follow policy or procedure for your piece of equipment, or you destroyed it by doing a skill that got you to, um, to survive. I don't, I don't ever think that'll ever be punished. I think if anything else, that would be, well, hopefully it'll be taken and taught and, uh, analyzed and right. hopefully put into practice. Um, so to touch on a little bit of what you were getting, what you said earlier about, uh, it's not always the leader that, uh, steps up and, you know, finishes the task. Um, you know, it's okay as, as an officer, especially just as specifically the officer, um, it's okay to not be the expert and it's okay to allow when someone steps up, it's okay to step out of the way and allow them to take over and run whatever the situation is. And you fall into place wherever you, wherever you go or where, wherever the situation is, you fall into place to keep everything moving forward. And one of the best, I think, examples of that, and I'm not a military expert. I don't claim to be, I don't have any experience in the military is called an Australian peel. So they'll be, they do this, they did this with uh, vehicles where they'll be going towards a target. They'll shoot and they need to break contact and they're in a line. The lead vehicle turns and the vehicle behind them keeps shooting and turns and everything follows them. So on and so forth until the end. And now they're gone and they're covering the rear with that last vehicle as well. So kind of a, maybe I'm, you know, 
outside the box with this example, but basically the point is you can step out of the way. Someone right behind you is a hundred miles an hour wide open. And when they go, you know, the next person may step up the next time and they come in a hundred miles an hour wide open. The whole point is the common goal is to have everyone on the same page and rocking and rolling. And that's what they're doing. Right. Everybody's so, got to be focused on the mission, whatever that mission is. I mean, right down to the smallest level, it could be, you know, searching a room. And if something happens, everybody understands that the mission is to get that room searched, but there could be obstacles in the way preventing you from doing that. And you may need to close the door. You may need to, you know, block yourself in. You may need to open a window. You may need to breach a wall. Uh, and somebody on your team may be the best at that. And you, you know, you, def you defer to them to take care of that task right there. You're not really as an officer, you're not giving up your command, but, but your, your team, your, your team leader for the activity may change depending on what, what that activity is. And you, you're, you're using your resources to its maximum capacity. You know, you know, who's, if you got to get through a small space, then you know who, who's the smallest. If, the small if, you, guy if you need the strongest person, then, you know, you, you pick the strongest person to do something. And, uh, um, all the rest of the, everything else goes out the window and you go, you go to a very, um, merit based system at that point where sure. it's like whoever has the skill executes because, uh, the consequences could be dire if you don't. Sure. And, I think, especially as an officer, I mean, I, I'm an officer in the department that I work for. And I've, what I've learned over time was the people that you lead don't want you to have every answer every time for all situations for every writing position, right? I feel like if you were to say, you know, I don't even know how this would play out, but let's say you're the officer on a, a specific call and you know, Hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And one of the guys is an expert at it. Like he it's, you know, whatever the situation is, I think they're going to have more respect by you stepping out of the way because the person's he's stepping up. Hey, LT, we need to do X, Y, and Z. All right, cool. Knock it out. I'll figure out where I fall in. No big deal. And you allow them, you, you empower them to take the lead on certain things. You give them, you delegate certain, you know, um, certain tasks or certain skills, or, you know, getting off, like this guy worked in that first due district before he came and transferred to my company. I know he knows those buildings, like the back of his hand. If he says something, I'm going to listen to him. I mean, obviously right. you need to validate that person. You don't just blindly listen to people, but you know, you're going to know who you can trust. And in these situations, when you're, it's like, I mean, like I've said before in other podcasts, it's just like driving a, a manual car, knowing when to hit the, cl hit the clutch and hit the gas is important. It's a balancing act. So if you know, this guy's an expert in that area and you know, he says something about whatever that area is or whatever that building is and a skill or a, a, um, tactic, let him take it over. All right, cool. Bill, let me know what, 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 you, what do you think we should do? Oh, you think, or not, what do you think we should do? Oh, this is going to work for this building for this address. That's why. Okay, cool. We're going to do that. Everybody let's get this together. Go ahead and take the lead on it. We're going to figure it out. Right. There's nothing Actually, wrong. it's, it's, it sounds funny, but it's, it's so true. You build trust with your crew as a, as the, the formal officer, 
you build trust with your crew faster showing vulnerability than you do showing that you're an expert in everything. Sure. And you know, the other thing too, that I have found success in as well, and I didn't always do this very well. I think I've only kind of really grasped this within the last couple of years where <sighs> appreciating how important those minor things inside the firehouse are and how important those conversations can be. And don't ever take somebody's time for granted when it comes to them expressing their opinions on anything, right. whether you agree with the situation or not. And what I've, what I'm getting at though, is, you know, if only our jobs as officers were as easy as worrying about fire ground problems, because the fire ground's the easiest place. Yeah. 1% of the yeah and it's, yeah. And it, but unfortunately the most difficult parts where you're really going to be tested as a leader is going to be inside that firehouse. And what they want is prime example is there was a situation a few years ago where a couple guys were talking about handline deployment and a specific way to do it. And I walked up and the guys were talking. They're like, Hey, we're thinking this, we're, we're thinking that. And I just looked over and I was like, we're no, we're doing, we're not doing a, we're doing B. That's the decision. I'm not even going down the road of a, we're sticking with B simple, straightforward. That's it. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Thanks LT. And then, you know, a few days later, one of the guys was like, Hey man, we really appreciate you being able to do that. And then it kind of went into a conversation of, you know, some guys I think have problems when it comes to that leadership of making a decision. You know, I bring that up a lot on here and I think that's a cultural thing where some people, I just don't think they have that, um, trying to think of how to say this, that core understanding of the skills for the industry you're leading. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, they, they really want that and they want you to be able to tap in on your experience. And, you know, I, I like telling fishtails just as much as someone else. Like when I'm, you know, chucking and jiving with the guys and it's like, oh yeah, it was three rooms off and it was really like a room. I mean, those, those stories are fun and, and that's, you know, where you kind of joke around and, and enjoy it. But when you bring up real world um, scenarios, Hey, I know you want to do A, B, and C. I don't think it's going to work. This is why here's my experience. I tried that. It didn't work. And this is the, and you explain to them what you've experienced, sharing your experiences. And, you know, I, I think that builds a lot of um, trust and rapport as well, because I don't want to say it validates your leadership, but when they really know, you know what you're doing. And then you kind of throttle back and allow them to kind of take over because, you know, you do have experiences, but for this situation, you may not have the experience, but you know, that guy does, and you just completely get out of the way. And then you kind of finesse uh, yourself in there a little bit, kind of, like I said, with the, the, the gas in the clutch, you kind of know when to throttle up and you kind of know when to hit, hit the clutch and just let it just get out of the way. Um, you know, I, I, I learned a lot from that uh, in my experience and, and, you know, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Cause you're yeah. not, you're kind of nodded and smiled a little bit. So, yeah. so uh, and that's the beauty of the week at smoke divers. And, you know, um, we've had researchers come in and look at what we do. We've had um, people write books about what we do. And, we kind of came to a agreement that putting people in real scenarios, um, obviously you've got to have the fundamentals and all that down before you come. But, but if you really want to get good at decision-making, 
you have to be put in a lot of different scenarios to develop your, your resources and experiences and nothing substitutes for a real call. But when you can design your scenarios where the group has to be adaptable and has to make decisions, they're not just given the answer. They have to figure the answers out along the journey. Um, we truly believe that every day that you're at smoke divers equals a year's worth of experience in decision-making because that's how many decisions you have to make in a day. You are put into so many different situations and sometimes it's your personal physical ability to move through an obstacle. Sometimes it's a decision you have to make whether to go upstairs, downstairs, take a line, not take a line. Um, take two people, take one person, uh, and you're using all of your senses all at once. And that's, you know, you're put in the situations where, where a typical training class is, okay, let me show you how to do this. And you demonstrate, and then you let them have practice time. And then you put them in a scenario and they do it exactly like you did it in the demo. That's at the very bottom level of learning a skill, which is critically, critically important. But for decision-making, if you don't ever go beyond that one skill, then you don't have the adaptability part. And that's why you get the questions from a lot of the, uh, the younger generation is like, well, how do you want me to put out the fire when there's no answer? for that it's uh, it depends on the situation and if we don't put them in different situations they don't realize that okay i've got five options and here's the best one to apply here and and you you can design your training to to build that in even at a low level one of the one of my favorite drills is the uh the scba problem solving drill where we and it kind of comes from from scuba diving where uh if you take a really good, like, you know, dive master or rescue diver class, one of the drills is they take everybody's gear and sink it to the bottom of the pool. And, you know, you got like a 15 foot deep pool. You jump in with no gear and you're not allowed to surface until you got all of your gear on. And so quickly you go down and the mistake you make is like looking for your gear. What's the most important thing is to be able to breathe. So you grab the first regulator you see and start breathing. Now the situation is different. Then you grab the first mask you see, you put that mask on and clear it. Now you're good. Now it's just a matter of negotiating around the bottom of the pool to come up. So we took that and we applied it to breathing apparatus. We'll get a group of five. We'll grab their air packs. We'll do something to them. Maybe we disconnect the main line. Maybe we trip the purge valve. Maybe we tighten the straps. Maybe we you know, have the bottle unhooked. And, and then we say, all right, the goal here is to put that air pack on as fast as possible and be breathing air. And this is a competition. Ready? Go. And they turn around and they go grab their air pack and they immediately, it's a competition. So they go straight to speed versus doing what they're supposed to do, which is check their equipment out and make sure it's working. So they'll throw the air pack on They'll get everything on. They go back, they turn the cylinder on and you hear, and they've got to solve that problem. And we do that over and over and over again. 
and my goal in designing that drill was I want you to be able to hear the sound and know what the problem is and know how to fix it. And there's a difference between the regulator leaking air and the cylinder leaking air. Uh, there's a difference in sound because uh, you got high pressure and then you've got a low pressure. Um, there's a difference in when you, when you get one arm in the, in one side of the strap and you can't get your arm in the other. And so we want to put them in those situations. So everything's not perfect. And, uh, and that gets their brain functioning into almost a, uh, a total adaptable, um, neuroplasticity that is, that is allowing them to always be thinking and not just be being a robot and carrying out tasks. Um, you want a lot of your, your gear and your equipment to almost be, um, you want it to be inherent and like not have to think about it to operate it and to get to that level then you have to spend a lot of time in that gear solving problems in it. And that's just one of the many uh, philosophies there. But the key is creating scenarios that require you to be adaptable. And you have to have instructors that are also adaptable because to meet the standard, maybe group one does it totally different than group two. And so it's not a checklist. It's an objective to meet. And then you debrief and talk about why you did what you did. We're more, we're more interested in why you did what you did than what you did. Sure. And, and that gets you thinking. And I'm sure that's probably a two way street as well. Just like leadership's a two way street. Whereas you go through this over the years, I'm sure that you've learned just as much from your students as your students oh. have probably learned from you guys, more. which trend. Yeah. Which, which can translate into um, leadership in the firehouse. Whereas, same thing kind of like we were talking about earlier was, you know, it doesn't really matter how new or experienced the guy is. If he does something a better, more efficient way than you're doing it, that still achieves the same goal or whatever your objective is, it gets you there faster, efficiently. I mean, we could even throw in safely. I mean, why not listen to him? Look exactly how he did it. And, We've actually and had that happen to where we'll be doing a drill and obviously we have outlines and objectives and everything's documented. And so, but we're, we're flexible enough in the instructor cadre that, and we trust our instructors enough. And this happens several times. A student comes and we're teaching a particular method. Maybe we're doing a subfloor rescue with a fire hose, or maybe we're doing it with rope or the handcuff knot or whatever. And one of the students may say, Hey, have you ever seen this? And they'll show a method. If the instructors feel that that is a better method than what we are currently using, um, we may be on the third rotation of six rotations that day. They have the immediate ability to change what they're teaching to that new method. And um, <laughs> technology-wise, they're able to go on their phone and quickly fill out a card and in Google Docs that goes to our plans section that says that they've changed the objective, <laughs> they've changed the method, and they're doing something different. And the plan section knows that we got to update the paperwork. And they can, oh, you know, they can do that real time. They don't, we don't have to have a meeting and discuss, you know, if, if, if long as they're meeting the objectives, they have the ability to change it. Now, sometimes it may be something that's good 
but not necessarily better. And then there's some discussion on which way we want to go then. But if it's something that like is 50% more efficient than what we were doing, then we drop what we were doing and we pick up the new method right then and move. So you, you give them the autonomy, Mm -hmm. which is also important. And that's another, that's another, um, important thing with, with leadership, especially at the company officer level is, you know, giving people autonomy is not necessarily releasing your control. I think if anything else, it's going to empower your control. As long as they have, they have a full understanding of your expectations, a full, um, they fully respect the weight of what you're giving them because they have to know the why. They have to know the why, and they also have to know, um, they have to know why you want them to do it. Yes. But what I mean is they have to know the goal, I think as well. So like, and I'm not saying goal, like, you know, put the fire out the goal of everybody being able to have a little autonomy on themselves, but at the overall goal is success of the team is, is the success from the individual level to the team level. And then, um, right back down to the very common, common goal of, um, teamwork. Right. You, you know, and, like, Oh, go ahead. And not, not everybody that is instructing that evolution has the autonomy to make the change, but the lead instructor for that evolution has it. And, uh, um, you can imagine if there wasn't leadership and that's why they call them the lead instructor their oversight there. They have a lot of experience. They've taught that evolution multiple times. They may have even designed the evolution. Uh, and then they'll have, you know, six, seven guys helping them execute that evolution. If you give it to everybody, just, uh, without any, without any discussion with the lead, then you can get into, okay, this instructor told me to do this, but this instructor's telling me to do this. And then there's confusion and there's no coordination. So the, the key is they have to know that they all are going to have a huddle before they make that change and get everybody on the, on the new same, same page. So you you have to be careful with it. You can't just totally uh, have free reign, but, but you have to have it built in the system where it can adapt quickly as long as, is, is that, you know, another to relate that to the fire station is I always tell the story about gloves. We had a process in our department for a firefighter getting a new pair of firefighting gloves that had to have six levels of signatures. So you filled out a form, the captain signed it. He sent it to the battalion chief, the battalion chief signed it, sent it to the division chief, the division chief signed it, division chief sent it to the operations chief, the operations chief signed it. And it just kept going. And then it went to supply and all these signatures were on there. And like three, four weeks later, you get a phone call and saying, Hey, you've been approved for a new set of gloves. And, uh, if you don't trust the captain at that station to determine whether or not that glove has a hole in it and needs to be replaced, then you you don't have very strong leadership and trust. And so, you know, that captain should have the autonomy to sign that form and there may be there may need to be accounting for it all the way through the system but he should be able to get those gloves right then with a phone call you know if the captain says he needs gloves he needs gloves 
it's, it's crazy to put that many, many layers on. And, and when you have that many layers, you discourage decision-making and you pass the buck to the next level to the point where you lose all creativity. And then people don't want to make decisions because they feel they're not trusted. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because while you're talking, I pulled up, um, I pulled up the smoke diver training philosophy and I think it's kind of interesting where it says, and this is related to the instructors, they're disciplined enough to know what is better for the student to experiment and learn a solution instead of being told how to do it. This philosophy proves valuable to both the student and the instructor and provides that learning process is continual. So I don't want to say that's a little off topic with that sentence, but I also feel like that sentence is important for this situation specifically because whoever decided you have to have six signatures instead of knowing at its most basic level, the fire captain, you entrusted him, you promoted him. He went through whatever your promotional process was right. to be vetted, to be a leader, to be vetted, to be a company officer. Mm -hmm. You can't just trust him to say, Hey, go to your supply and get gloves. And here you go. I mean, right. if it's an accountability thing, as far as like financials and all that, again, you're trusting this guy with lives. I don't, I don't know what your staffing is, but for ease of conversation, yeah. he's in charge of four lives for 24 hours and right. a million dollar fire truck, but you can't yeah. give this guy a hundred dollar pair of gloves. Right. You have to go through all this. And what I, what I've learned through my experiences, it's more so insecurity of those in charge when they have to have their thumb on everything and not allow what we talked about earlier, the autonomy of people yeah. being allowed to govern themselves. Um, yeah. And smoke divers is a, is a great, when, when we, there was a, there was a 10 year period where we didn't have a smoke diver class. And then when we started it back in 2005, um, there was a core group of us that we, we had our finger on everything and we knew everything that was going on every minute. And it needed to be that way because we were just getting it started back and it's really high speed and all. And, uh, you know, we're running everything with like a type three command team and all that. And, uh, um, I was actually doing two roles. We, we called like the, the, the lead, uh, instructor guy, we call him smoke daddy. So that's kind of like a nickname. I've, I just, and I was doing the smoke daddy role plus the incident commander role. And I just passed off the smoke daddy role a couple of classes ago to a guy. And it's basically like, you're the, uh, you know, you're the, you're the guy in charge of the yard and, and getting the instructors and keeping the schedule and all that. Um, but even once our system built out and we had the different leadership in different areas, um, it's scary because there are times everybody kind of expects you to know everything, but there were times where like a, you know, young instructor would come up and he'd be like, Hey chief, uh, um, where are we doing so-and-so, so-and-so I'm supposed to be with them. And I would be like, I don't know. <laughs> you need to talk to operations. Yeah. And, and, and man, I'm telling you, it is a scary feeling to be in that situation because you kind of want to know, but you sure. have to accept the fact that you can't know everything and that you've put the right, a uh, person in place to be able sure. to take care of it. And, uh, it's rewarding when you see it working. Um, 
but I don't know that you ever are totally like relaxed with it. Um, but, yeah. but it's necessary. And I think that's where a lot of people, they don't necessarily do it in a malicious intent, but it's just like, they can't, they can't let go, you know, they, they just can't let go and, uh, and trust the, the folks that are there. And if that's the problem, then you got the wrong people, um, in those positions that are actually in charge of those evolutions. Yeah. And you have, again, that, I can think that kind of builds off of the, I don't want to call it cliche, but, um, that kind of builds off the whole trust thing as well, right? If you the same page and yeah, you can't be there all the time, but I know that, you know, exactly what I expect of you. And I know that, you know, that I know, or maybe I'm saying that wrong, but we're on the same page of exactly what needs to be done with the goals. We're on the same mindset. We're all, we're all on the same um, page as far as aggression and doing things aggressively smart, but we're all on the same page of, I know what David, David Rhodes, battalion chief, I know what he expects. He's going to be looking for X, Y, and Z. I better have myself together. So when he asks for it, I can give him a real answer and I'm going to be able to produce exactly what he asks for. I'm going to be dependable. I'm going to be consistent and I'm going to be continuously uh, dependable. Right. And then, and then if, if something goes wrong, they have to feel comfortable enough that you like, you know, you're not going to hammer them uh, with it, that you're going to use it as a, as a learning opportunity. And again, back to the why is one of the first things I would always ask in a, in a critique, whether we were on the scene or doing it the next shift or whatever is what did you see when you got there? Um, what did you do and why did you do it? Sure. Because a lot of times in retrospect, it was the wrong thing. Sure. But at the time they didn't have all the information. Sure. And so people that get focused on what they did can easily miss the whole point and get mad at them and be like, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. Sure. So then the follow-up is knowing what you know now, what would you have done different? Sure. And that's the growth and the learning part that's so important. And if you can create that safe environment where people aren't worried about getting disciplined or, you know, getting beat over the head or whatever yeah, with it, getting embarrassed for that growth. Yeah. yeah. And you got to do it in a right way. If you, and I've seen so many go haywire. It's like, you know, well, why did you do this? Or this wasn't right or, sure. or this. And uh, it's just not productive because as soon as the, if you're the leader and you, and you take that tone and bring that up, everybody else shuts down immediately and you're not going to get any more information. Everybody's just going to bobblehead you and go, yes, chief. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And one of, one of my favorite and <clears throat> one of my favorite officers that I worked for that was a battalion chief. I mean, I, I know I screwed up and I'll make this quick cause we're, we're starting, uh, we're going to wrap up here shortly. Um, I know I screwed up. Like I had a situation, I just, right after everything played out, I thought I made the right decision. And the minute he kind of did one of the old, Hey, why don't you come out front real quick? And he's on the ramp in his car. He's like, Hey, let's talk. I knew I screwed up and I'm like, Oh crap, here we go. And it was, I know what you told me. I don't like it. It didn't sit with me very well. I need you to tell me what you were thinking and why you thought this was a good idea. 
And I told him and I proceeded to get crushed, but I knew it was coming. I mm -hmm. knew I thought I made the right decision. However, he still asked me what I was thinking. We talked about it on the scene. He came back and we talked about it again. Not to be, he wasn't beating a dead horse, but the fact that someone that's a supervisor would listen to what I had to say, process it, come back, still calmly talk to me, hammer me, explain to me what was wrong, why I was wrong, why not to do that. You know, I didn't even get that. I could see what you're, no, it was just flat out, this is unacceptable. You know, and I'm like, all right, well, I mean, I respect, I respect that way of being yeah. um, corrected and disciplined. And then, you know, what it ended up doing was made me realize that I was on a path that I needed to stop and I needed to correct myself and uh, not go down that path of being that officer. And that was like three and a half, four years ago. And it's made a big difference. It really has. Yeah, um, everybody likes, uh, you know, think about it in sports terms is like, if you're, if you're, a baseball player and there's something wrong with your swing. Don't you want to be corrected so sure. that you can be a better hitter? And, and they, that's what they call it, whether it's gymnastics or, or baseball or whatever, they call it corrections. And the coach is giving you corrections to take yeah. They're They're not hammering you. And then, and then once uh, another, another common mistake is, so you, you did whatever it is you did. You had the conversation and, and all that. Now, if that chief holds that against you for the rest of your life, then it's not, not productive, but Correct. he has to have the ability to get through that issue and then totally let it go. And now his back, and I used to say it all the time, like, dude, I got a hundred percent trust in you. Um, the only thing you can do is lose it. Like, sure. like you got it right now. So don't be walking on eggshells, make yeah. your, don't be afraid to make a decision. Sure. If you mess up, we're gonna we're gonna talk it out and and work through it. And obviously, there's a difference in there's a difference in making a mistake on a call on a judgment call than there is of like not following a procedure or something like that. Those are two Blatantly totally ignoring. different animals. But um, yeah. But even on a procedure, if somebody didn't follow a procedure, you still want to know the why because there could have been some circumstances that the uh, that the procedure didn't cover. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's and that's the focal point of leadership is making a decision with very little information with the task with the people you have around you. And I believe that's called the 80 percent solution. So it's kind of the idea of especially like in the lethal environment, a good plan enacted now is better than a great plan enacted yep. later. Old patent quote. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's not that you're trying to be a hot dog or a, a cowboy, but I mean, if you think about it, you know, you could have somebody hanging out a window and there's fire licking over their heads and you, your entire judgment is to flow water over top, you know, through the window behind them because that, that fire will kill them. Yeah. And let's say for whatever, you know, something doesn't go so well, but you made a decision, you had very little information. This was the, what I thought had to happen, but you missed some, you missed a victim out front or victim behind the whatever situation, maybe that's a bad example. But the point that I'm making is you have to act, right? You have to do things sometimes with very little information. It looks like you're doing the right thing at that time. And then, you know, you kind of learn that maybe it wasn't the best, I guess, scenario. Um, but we don't have that luxury of having all the information as firefighters in our, you know, what we do for a living. And, and as officers, it's very difficult. And then you add in, the human factor and everybody has lives outside of the firehouse. There's different stressors. You're tired. 
it's 100 degrees outside, there's a foot of snow on the I mean, whatever it is, um, all those things go into um, what it, the stresses of making decisions, of decision-making, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So um, we're hitting right around that 45-minute mark. Yep. Uh, is there anything else that we missed that you wanted to touch on? I apologize for being long-winded at that no, last last example um is there um, anything else just uh kind of on a funny note you were talking about the like when people have uh they don't have a lot of experience and it's hard for them to make a decision i always use the example like you know the guy does a size up he still hasn't given any direction and by the time he gets his size up done he he makes a decision but then he turns around and looks at the structure and the conditions of change and so he starts the process all over and he, and it's like a never ending cycle. So I always say that guy right there indecision may or may not be his problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, indecision is a decision, right? You can be a bad leader and this isn't this. I mean, I know, I understand the example, but what I'm saying is you can be a bad leader and not because you make bad decisions because you can't make a decision. Right. You, you know, so like you gotta, you, ha- you gotta, you gotta have momentum and you can always adjust, but get something started, get a line get a line stretched, get a water supply. If you go in and, and it turns out that that's not the best place to, to, to make the attack from, then you can, you can adjust. But, sure. And then when, and you know, all that starts in the firehouse, when you foster those environments of trust as well, to kind of add into that little bit of, add another little bit of layer to that. When you start going through those situations, your people are going to know you're kind of uneasy or a little on edge, or you may be unsure, but you're making a decision based off your experience of this, the task you have at hand, they'll throw things in there. Hey, LT, I know we're going for, through the front door, but I don't, I think it's going to, the bedroom's going to be here. This is going to be that. They're going to start throwing things at you, not to distract you, not because they don't trust you. It's because they may feel like they have an important piece of the puzzle and they know you're going to listen. You may not do what they say. You may not just drop what you're doing and change direction, but you're going to accept the information because obviously, you know, I mean, it's a dictatorship at that point. It's not a democracy, but you're going to allow that. They're going to finesse the movement of, you achieving your goals as a right. crew. That yep. makes sense. hundred percent. Yep. So this has been really great. I, I greatly appreciate your time. Um, thank you. Um, is there a good way for people to reach you? Do you have social media? Yeah. Do you have Chief anything David like that? Rhodes, uh, Chief David Rhodes on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, email is David dot roads r-h-o-d-e-s at clarion events.com all right and we're going to add the links to everything in the description below dave please don't go anywhere while i close this out thank you everyone thank you for joining us with the tip of the spirit leadership podcast please leave us a like and a review and give us a download five stars are our favorite as it helps us grow our show and grow our community everybody Thank you for your time. There's going to be more episodes in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. Tip of the Spear Leadership Podcast. Be yourself. Be present. Be unstoppable. Thanks, guys.